something that I'm really interested in that um, we've been talking about in the arts community is what type of ancestor you'll be. And what that means to me specifically is the work that I'm doing, there's going to be a day when I'm not going to be able to dance, I'm not going to be able to curate at the highest level, or I'm not going to be as quick with the information. But what type of legacy am I leaving for my communities? Derek Leon Washington has forged a creative path as a human rights defender, finding his place at the intersection of social justice and the arts. A cultural anthropologist, curator, and dancer who's tackled racial injustice head-on, Derek has directed interactive dance education programs, spanning from swing to mambo, and ripened his cultural prowess through curation of countless museum exhibitions, all in the name of empowering communities. Recently, Derek brought his expertise to the UN as a recipient of a senior fellowship from the organization's Human Rights Office, OHCHR. I'm Natalie Hutchison from UN News, and for this Lit Is On podcast, we spoke at length about his life's journey so far and how he plans to take his UN experience back to his community. What motivated me to forge my path as a human rights defender started out when I was younger. I grew up in Northern California, a place called San Jose. It's uh, the capital of the Silicon Valley. And I was really interested in reading. I was interested in the social sciences. I didn't know they were called social sciences at the time. I was interested in, in expressive cultures and museums. And I was really just excited to, to learn, to expand my knowledge. When I was uh, in junior high, I discovered dance. And that really brought all of my different ideas together. So with dance, I was able to meet different types of people, to ask different types of questions. San Jose and the Bay in general is multi-ethnic, multi-racial people um, coming in from all over the world. And it's a melting pot sometimes, but sometimes people have their own neighborhoods, their own silos and dance. And later an undergraduate and graduate school anthropology allowed me to not just study people um, in groups, but also get to know people. And how that relates to becoming a human rights defender, as I continued with dance, I continued with traveling throughout the Americas, Brazil, Cuba, Mexico, and Europe, I noticed that it's such a privilege to be able to dance, to be able to create art. And as, as I said, I got older, less friends, less acquaintances, less colleagues were able to, to do this. So I was thinking of how can my dance, how can my art, how later on can my curation be in service to the communities where I'm from, but also nationally and globally. For different friends who were involved in the criminal justice system just for tagging or graffiti or for smoking marijuana, which in California is perfectly legal, that derailed and put them on a certain track for the rest of their lives. So how I became a human rights defender was understanding the privilege I have as an artist and how I can um, serve not just my family or, or the people within my geographic community, but also just people generally. About how old were you when you realized that this is what you wanted to do? I would say 14 or, or 15. So I started uh, dancing around that time. And San Jose is, is in the South Bay of the Bay Area. And San Francisco is about 40 minutes north. So I traveled to San Francisco. It was a, a dance contest. Uh, 
for a movie called Save the Last Dance, and we were dancing hip-hop, poppin', and funk styles. And just walking to the, the dance contest and then the TV studio, this was on a street called Market Street, and there was people living in tents, there was people um, injecting drugs and smoking different types of hard drugs. And I was thinking that there's so much wealth in the Bay Area and San Francisco, but so much poverty connected to so much wealth as as well. So that's when I started to think like, wow, I'm, I'm kind of living in this bubble of this amazing life of dance and traveling around the Bay Area and, and having dance battles. But there's other people who are just trying to get by day to day. Right. It's yeah. There's this dichotomy of people. It's quite jarring to walk through San Francisco. Um, how do you sort of see using, how do you use performance expression in the arts as a tool to fight for intercultural equality? Uh, how does that work? That's a really good question. And I hear that question a lot. And I have a certain reaction to that as an artist because in one sense, the idea of using the arts, and I believe that the arts are just beautiful and important in and of themselves. And on the other hand, I understand how important the arts are with fostering community and spreading messages, and a person doesn't have to be fluent in a specific language or have an advanced degree. So I, I do see it that way as well. So going on to, to that part of, of the question, as how, how does that look like? So specifically for some of the arts that I work in, that I create film on, or I've curated into physical exhibitions, so like a performing art, or like um, an art like Bomba from Puerto Rico, how that looks like is many of the arts that I study started as a form of, of resistance, of just being alive in the Americas, of, of showing people, people of African descent, people of indigenous cultures, of their own culture, but what I'm really interested in, in a lot of these cultures is how they saw other cultures as beautiful and incorporated those into the culture. And I believe that's what, for instance, the performing arts uh, can do. For instance, um, in the United States, we had different protests for racial justice this past summer. And it's one thing to protest in silence, which is also very performative, but also to have bomba drums, to have different types of drums and different types of music, to have dance that can spread the message in different ways that language can. I think the arts can go sometimes further, ask the, the hard questions. For instance, if we're talking about going back to dance or partner dance, who leads and follows if we're going to do a performance? Can we switch who leads and follow? And many of the dances of the Americas and partner dance, um, the male traditionally usually leads and the female traditionally follows. But what about people of different gender expressions? How can we show that? And that raises different questions on the idea of, of gender equality, of who's even invited. Mm -hmm. If we're talking uh, about the right of education, what type of, of education with with dance specifically from salsa to Cuban rumba to bomba to swing to jazz dances, they talk about different educations that in, in my upbringing in Northern California, they're almost seen as footnotes. For instance, um, enslaved Africans, like they were footnotes, like they came in chains 
on ships and then they fought for their freedom and, and that's a history of uh, people. Um, why using the arts or why the arts are in service of these things is we can learn these things in different ways of different music, of different objects are being repatriated to back to indigenous peoples or to peoples of Africa or to native peoples all over the, the world. Certainly, yeah. I want to ask you about what you mentioned about the protests this summer. Uh, did you have any direct involvement in your own form of protesting? And what did that look like? Yes and and no. Because and on one hand, and some of the arts institutions that I've set work at, um, the, the murder of George Floyd was uh, a huge turning point. Um, sometimes we say, because of the murder of George Floyd, we are going to, um, we have a new mission statement and a new system where we're going to have diversity and such things. But the, the work that I've been doing from the exhibitions at the Smithsonian, Rhythm and Power, Dreams and Defiance, Urban Stuff, I've, not myself, but in community, we've already been doing the work. And the work is that um, people are important, that um, this isn't something that's been going on, but this is a, a continuous struggle. Something that I'm really interested in that um, we've been talking about in the arts community is what type of ancestor we'll be. And what that means to me specifically is the work that I'm doing, there's gonna be a day when I'm not gonna be able to dance, I'm not gonna be able to curate at the highest level, or I'm not gonna be as quick with the information, but what type of legacy am I leaving for my communities? Mm -hmm. And I was super interested um, how um, people in their teens and 20s, they started um, protesting and their different types of energies. Mm -hmm. And what I, I did that something did change in, in my work though, because say if we have a certain type of, of music, for instance, um, salsa or a certain type of dance, that's, that's kind of for a people of a certain generation sometimes, or people who like that music, but having popular music too. So thinking of different ways of how, not just focused on a genre or a specific age, but having people of different ages, multi-generational, multi-gendered, so I would say that as one thing is how my, my work has changed is looking at some of the implicit biases I've had and push my work forward and also be in conversation with other people doing this work. Yeah, definitely. Um, what about you? Could you share with listeners your own ethnic and cultural background and how you feel this has shaped your life experience? Yes, I'm an African-American. My mom's side is from Mississippi and my father's side is from Louisiana. And we've been in the United States before there was a United States, before there was a 13 colonies. And I've had the opportunity to visit um, both sides of the family, more on my mom's side and Mississippi, but just studying the history of Mississippi and the, the deep South and just the the brutality as well and just happy that um, we have we don't have all the written records but we just have oral histories of my family of of people not just surviving but thriving of, of having their own lands um, having organic food before we knew what organic was of, of maintaining family even um, through a harsh system of enslavement of, of finding space giving space and holding space for not just our immediate family, but the, the larger communities as well. 
and how that reflects my work. So I didn't grow up in, in the deep south. I grew up in San Jose, which is much more ethnic and racially diverse. It has a, a very small African American um, community in San Jose. So growing up, I was exposed to people from all around the world. And when I was an undergraduate, there's San Francisco, there's Oakland, and these places have longer established African-American communities, especially in San Francisco with the Fillmore District, with jazz as a strip for entertainment and culture. Oakland, um, a center of civil and human rights with the Black Panthers and other um, rights communities. So I see my work as not just focused on a specific geographic location or even the United States, but I see it as the Americas because I feel like I was, I never fit in really anywhere. So as I talked before is like the work that I do in, in the communities of, of artists and human rights defenders, I see it as a movement as really how can we make our whole continent more equitable, more equal in a way that it's, it's really never been. So looking at class, looking at gender, looking at race, looking at colorism, looking at um, where people are from, nationality. And then lastly, why it comes in to, to play with just people of African descent. So we're talking about salsa, we're talking about jazz music, we're talking about rock and roll, we're talking about reggaeton, we're talking about samba. It's a mixture of, of different cultures, but what these musics are is it's a specific people that saw the beauty in other cultures and brought it together into a unified whole over generations and generations. So I take that aspect of my, my cultures as a person of African descent to see the beauty in, in other cultures, to create a unified whole, to not to say that I created it or Christopher Columbus it, which means to put something on it and say I discovered it, but to create something and put it in the service of human rights, in the service of humanity, in the service for shared liberation. Yeah, we could certainly all appreciate each other's differences more. I think it's also interesting and I wonder if you would expand a little bit because as somebody who grew up in California um, and kind of in a similar area, it sounds like there's so many of us that can be in these environments and just turn a blind eye or maybe not pick up what you did. Um, do you think mm -hmm. that there were other factors that contributed to you being so culturally aware of the diversity around you, of the socioeconomic disparity, um, and mm -hmm. wanting to do something about that? I think about the disparity, it comes back to my, my background in, in elementary and in junior high, just being taught about African-American history. We taught, we're taught that we came in chains, we came in quote unquote as slaves, and our history is to fight for civil rights with Martin Luther King, the civil rights movement, and there we go. That's the history of, of my people. And I was really interested in, there's gotta be more to that. Is that all it is, is that we, our history started um, once we were quote unquote discovered and, and brought to the United States. So that was kind of a, a turning point, but just also being really interested in, in people as well. For instance, um, just some of my classmates, we have a large Mexican-American and Chicano population. And we learned in school as, as well as that people cross the border and then that they came here. But I thought that probably wasn't true. There's probably more to that. And of course, I did learn that 
we um, that, there's a lot more to that that history of people not even crossing the border, but the border crossing them. So just that inquisitiveness of feeling that that the history that I was taught wasn't completely right, but I didn't really have the answers or I didn't really know how to study. Mm-hmm. And really that's where the arts and the dance comes in because it helped me think of how could I ask these questions or how could I make these connections with people because I'm a shy person, but when I'm dancing or when I'm creating art, I've, that's another aspect of my personality. Mm-hmm. So also when you talk about an African-American community or a Mexican-American or Chicano community, was also synonymous with a poor community or community with crime. And I wondered why, because I knew people in my community that had four jobs and they were still poor. So I asked the questions, why are they still poor and they're working so hard? Or why are um, we living so close to these landfills? Why is that? Or why is there no stop signs and cars drive so fast? And But when I go into other neighborhoods, they're quiet, there's stop signs, there's not potholes. So all of these things um, inspired me and really reflects into how I curate and how I see the world. But what I'm also interested in is that, that with the arts, it's not just about one person. It's about how can we change our present and how can we change um, just our local and even the international too. Definitely. Let's talk a little bit about your work with the UN. What has it meant for you to be a part of the UN Human Rights Minority Fellowship Program? Uh, a lot. It's been a tremendous opportunity. And what I, I learned is that I learned uh, just like what I was doing outside of the UN is, is finding your community and building your community. This work of human rights and human rights defending, um, it's not just a one person job, it's a collective job. So how do you see your work with the UN integrating into the work you do with your community? I think what the UN, what I'll take from that is the idea of diplomacy. And the idea of diplomacy that I'm really interested in is seeing how the local is connected to the international. And I'm really specifically interested in, in the local and how the local can be our own geographic um, community, but also the local from our own family units, however that looks like, of how we treat other people. So I'm interested in as we say sometimes that the, that the personal is political. Mm-hmm. So how am I being that change? And that idea of, of patience, of change, that it's the change that I hope for of equality and liberation for all might not happen in my lifetime. But what I, I said throughout our discussion is that this is an intergenerational struggle. And struggle seems like it's, it is a, a hard word because this is a struggle for the liberation and quality and civil human rights for everyone. Mm-hmm. But then that's where the arts come in because our lives shouldn't be a constant struggle. We should have moments of peace, moments mm-hmm. of joy, moments of stillness and moments of rest as well. And that's where that patience comes in. I think that's really wonderfully put. And I appreciate the patience aspect because we can't see the fruits of everything right away, but it's certainly at the very least reassuring to know that we've done our part and cultivate the way forward for the next generation. Um, Did you want to 
expand on how you feel about the use of the word minority as it was something that we spoke of that may form sort of a comparative mentality. I think listeners should should understand what your perspective is on that. Right. My perspective on the word minority is it's complicated. It's it's an important word when we're talking about international human rights mechanisms. For instance, certain countries say that um, everyone in their population within their borders is all equal and there's no separation. Um, when we know that there's ethnic, racial, um, religious minorities and they face certain barriers, uh, certain types of discrimination. And to be able to chart this and to find ways, and not necessarily find ways, we have human rights mechanisms that uh, address this. I think this is important. But speaking from the United States context, and specifically I'm speaking for myself, um, from my educational background is younger and even throughout junior high, high school, and sometimes even in college, we were taught that we were minorities. And what that also implied was that our histories were, were minor. So I talked about before, again, for instance, African-Americans, that our contributions to the country was that um, we came in as enslaved people and then we fight for civil rights um, for people of Mexican descent, Mexican-Americans, that they work in the fields. And these are some of the words that we learned as, as well. We're told that we were minorities or sometimes that we were saved, that we were brought civilization. Yeah. And I, I have a, an issue with that because a reason why I, I continue with anthropology throughout my whole academic career is because I wasn't looking for, for myths or fairy tales or nationalism, but just hoping that we can just have a, share an honest history. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel that sometimes the word minority in the English language, and again, I'm just speaking for myself, um, it really diminishes the contributions of so many different groups and peoples of, of this country, of the United States. So in my work and the exhibitions that I create, I don't use the word minority at all, because again, in the English language, it can sometimes mean minor or less than. So that's why even the titles of the exhibitions and the programs I use, for instance, Rhythm and Power, Dreams and Defiance, urban mm -hmm. stomp, world reimagined. Mm -hmm. And it's, I know that it sounds a little bit extra, but it's again, to show people that they are worth something. It's not like, and not even saying that their life matters because matter is like at the lowest level. It's like almost tolerance, but that they're excellent just as who they are. And that doesn't mean they're better than anyone else. But again, going back to just showing an honest history of the ways that people not only contribute to this country, but to our continent of the Americas and how we can all move forward together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly words matter and language is one of those things that can live on. Um, what advice might you have for listeners who don't work in an official human rights capacity but want to be a force for positive change in the fight for racial and ethnic equality? I think that's one thing is, is understanding, as you said, racial and ethnic, it's intersectional. So racial and ethnic relates to gender equality, to the right to having a safe and clean space, the right to education. So all of it's connected. And so I think that maybe we don't have time to focus on all the issues, but understand that we're all connected in our struggle for human and civil rights. I would also say to 
this can be a 24 seven because there's so many different issues that we're trying to address, but have those moments of stillness, of peace, of taking a walk, of finding humor um, amongst the craziness that is, that is sometimes life. I'd also say that we are the change. So the personal is political. How do we treat um, the people in our circles as well? There's United Nations, which is a huge global entity, but we do have um, our local communities, our local family units, find your, your community and find ways to, to be motivated. And how I'm motivated is I like to be around other people who are motivated, people of different ages and, and knowledge, uh, also people who have a, a sense of humor. So sometimes we laugh so we don't cry has been something which I've learned in the past um, two years with this pandemic, with um, things that have happened because of the COVID has exasperated certain inequalities, not just racial and ethnic, but several different inequalities that I see just outside of my window. But again, I think how we stay energized is through community. We're in it for the long run. That was Derek Leon Washington speaking to me, Natalie Hutchison, as part of our ongoing series of multimedia stories from UN News surrounding the 20th anniversary of the landmark Durban Declaration. For more inspiring stories featuring champions in the fight for equality and the effort to rid the world of racism, visit our features page at www.unnews.org forward slash pages forward slash Durban sketches. Thanks for listening.